to the Wildverse podcast, where we introduce you to the wild world of taxidermy, a place where artists and hunters collide. I'm Ashley. And I'm Heather. And today we are going to be covering the most common question we get on our social media accounts. How do I become a taxidermist? My word, I could not tell you how many comments I get that are asking that question. It's really one of those topics that doesn't really have a simple answer. I mean, we just covered how we both started in our last episode, and those two stories really show like the different paths to success. And like they might be a little bit similar, but also very different in the actual learning of taxidermy. Yeah, I agree. The two paths may be different, but I can tell you that one common factor is the passion that it takes to succeed. And uh, there's never an easy path to get to where you want to be, especially when you are learning something new. Literally no two paths are the same and everyone's learning style is so different. But I definitely think doing some kind of hands-on learning is important when learning taxidermy, be it through a taxidermy school or class or finding a mentor. I think that's super important. What do you think? So um, I think honestly the best route, like if I had to go back, if I didn't have anybody that I could learn from or like knew a taxidermist, If I had to give a piece of advice, I would honestly say, join your state association first, like even before you do anything and go to a convention, just because you're going to meet so many taxidermists. And if you are actually truly interested in it, you will talk to people that will help you or like point you in the right direction because, you know, YouTube and Google and stuff is fine. But if you can like go to a convention and actually meet people like so at least in my state, so many people want to like help everybody. So that's kind of my opinion. Um, if I could give myself advice before I started this, that's probably what I'd say. I agree on that. I think the taxidermy conventions and competitions are so pivotal to learning. And that's like where I met all the people that I converse with now. Like even we, you and I first met for the first time at a competition in person. Yep. Um, and that's like where I've met all of the other people that I still converse with. So I definitely yeah, uh, yeah. wholeheartedly support that. It is a great place to meet people um, because of course, not everyone will have the opportunity to apprentice someone. So the next best option is to go to a school or even some great classes from top notch taxidermists. When we asked that question on taxidermy q and I would have never thought we'd get such great feedback. I know I learned a lot, but like Did you learn anything, you know, from your responses? Oh, yeah. So your question on taxidermy Q&A on Facebook, it was, how did it go? Like, um, have you been to taxidermy school and how was your experience? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, I learned that there is so many more schools than I thought. And so many people are teaching classes, which is great. Um, I also learned uh, that some colleges offer taxidermy classes. Well, I'll have to pull up that information. Maybe we can add that in like on the screen here. Uh, That was something I learned. And yeah, there was just a lot of feedback. I think a lot of people have gone to taxidermy schools and attended classes. What did you think about that? Were you shocked by some of the information? Uh, Yeah, I don't know if I'd be like shocked, shocked by some of them, but it was definitely eye opening to hear of schools that you I've never heard of. Like there was some Now, being I'm not from the West Coast, but there were some in like Idaho and uh, there's a school in Texas I never heard of before. Um, And we really got some kind of insider views on the good and the bad. Uh, We've got some info on some not so great reviews of some schools across the country. 
we're going to kind of try to put some of that info into our survey answers when we put it out on Facebook and Instagram and everywhere. So uh, hopefully we can help steer people to something that's a good choice and not somewhere that they're going to regret going. Um, And that goes everywhere from schools to even classes. You know, I've heard of some classes that I never would have thought that were great or on the other hand, not so great. Right. Like I, like I told you in the last episode, I went to a taxidermy school in Montana. And then another experience I have with that is when I took Wes Moat's class. And those were two very different experiences. And, you know, I, I was lucky. I think I had a pretty good experience with both of mine. Definitely like West Moat's class. That was top notch. And then the school was good too. It's just um, when you go to schools, you're getting the basic mechanics of taxidermy generally, right. especially if it's a beginner course. So while it's good to go, and I think it shows that you're um, showing a lot of initiative to go to school, you're obviously passionate about it enough to put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. Um, it is just the basics. And I think that is something that's really important to know. Like when you go to a taxidermy school, especially a beginner one. Yes, I agree. Because if you go to a school, like you said, you learn kind of a little bit of everything, a very broad spectrum on what you're doing. And honestly, a lot of the classes aren't going to cover your your skinning, prepping, salting, tanning. Um, most of the time when you go to a class for, let's say, deer, I've never been to one of Wes's. But from what I've heard, I mean, it's more like you're focusing on the finer details of what you're putting into a deer mount. And that is great when you know the basics. But I I don't know. I mean, would you recommend classes like that to somebody who is just starting out? Or do you think they should go to a school or just, you know, just learn a good all around basic knowledge of taxidermy before you go to something like that? Okay, so I have two opinions on this kind of or two different things I want to say about that is that yeah like Wes's class he puts on a very specific class it's advanced whitetail at least the one I took he does do like kind of different classes too but so that was very specific and I think it's important when a person is looking for a class or school that you do you know be honest with yourself that if you know if it's an advanced class and you've only mounted like a handful of deer, maybe look for something um, a little more like in your wheelhouse first. So I think specific classes like that are really good, but I think it's important to know like if you're just doing like a bird class and you've never mounted a bird, make sure it's geared towards beginners too. And then on the contrary, so I went to a taxidermy school and the school that I went to we did mammals, birds, and fish. It was a little bit of everything. And I personally really enjoyed that part of it because at the time, I didn't really know what direction I wanted to even take with taxidermy. And so getting to do a little bit of each helped me narrow it down. And I did. I narrowed my um, interest down. I knew I didn't want to work <laughs> with birds or fish. I, I'm i a mammals girl and I'm going to stick with that. So if you're a person like me, like, and if you're kind of not super sure about what you want to do I think a general class would be great or if you're a person who has hardly dabbled in taxidermy that might be good too but yeah I just think it's important to you know consider what the class is offering if you have never mounted something before you definitely want to look for a beginner class if you've just dabbled beginner class if you've been doing it for a little while longer there is intermediate and advanced classes that you can find yeah, very good points. Um, but that some of the stuff you asked and kind of stated brings me on to ask you your opinion on the YouTube and Facebook 
taxidermy learners. <laughs> so, uh, like, you know, there's people that literally are just die hard. I'm going to learn this solely off of YouTube and solely off of posting my pictures on Facebook and having people tell me how I did. I'm just kind of curious to hear kind of what your opinion is on that. Yeah, that's a great point that, you know, a person can, you can mount an animal from just online resources. Uh, like, that's a good point. Like Facebook, there's so many resources on Facebook nowadays, so many groups. YouTube has so many good videos that a person can literally do like step by step. Also, it's the mecca of taxidermy. The encyclopedia of taxidermy is taxidermy.net. And that's, you know, any question you have can be answered through that. So for a lot of reasons, now is like the easiest time more than ever to learn taxidermy because there's just so many resources. However, I don't know if that's necessarily what you should uh, stick to. I think it's a good way to get a start. But then if you're serious about taxidermy, I think it's really important to branch out. Like we were saying earlier, go to conventions, go to seminars. And if you really want to step up your game or if you really are, you know, wanting to be uh, a high level competitor or even just like a really top notch commercial taxidermist, I think it's really important to try to learn from people hands-on in some kind of class setting. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I feel like there's nothing beats hands-on. And I feel like our culture now is getting so geared towards just social media, get on your phone and talk to people only through that. And like, totally, you don't want people to lose that, that one-on-one connection. And there's nothing like, for instance, going to a convention and you're watching a seminar and afterwards And even during, you know, you can ask questions, you can go up and see what the person's doing. You know, if you're struggling with something, sometimes it's not the easiest thing to put a picture on Facebook and then try to interpret what people are telling you to change without actually physically seeing it. Sometimes that's all it takes to like make the difference in your struggles. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Like I think posting on Facebook and stuff is great, but it'll only get you so far generally. And just speaking from experience too, and like my personal bias, like I know that wouldn't really work for me, but I think generally, like you're saying, it's super important to have some kind of hands-on experience with taxidermy because it's so hands-on, like literally the most hands-on artistic thing ever. It's it's just hard to put that into, you know, a flat 2D screen. It is. It is. I mean, I know when I first started learning and I remember sitting there watching him mounted deer and I just could not wrap my head around like how like I'm watching this whole process go down and I'm trying to figure out how in the world like are you gonna turn that into like what do you do with those eyes you know like it's it's just all floppy all over that thing's face like and then once you see it happen you're like ah I got you now (laughs) yeah I think that's maybe a misconception that people have is that taxidermy is maybe easier than it actually is but there's just so many different steps to it and so it's hard to just put that into you know like internet research so just seeing the process in person even just seeing it in person you're watching it happen is even you know important so yeah I totally agree Um, and we're actually check out our Facebook and our Instagram we did that survey that we talked about and we kind of compiled all that info to try to give all of you the best rated schools and classes that we got from our research and people's actual experiences at these schools. That way it makes your your navigation of figuring out where you want to learn um, a lot easier. So check out those social media sites for some of that info. 
All right, so then if you are at the stage where, okay, I've, I've learned some taxidermy and I really wanna start getting into actually doing this as more than just a hobby maybe, if you are looking at starting your own business or even just working as a taxidermist, the next hurdle to tackle would be looking into what is needed to start a business or start working as a taxidermist legally. Yeah, so I know when I opened up my full-time business, when I did that, I of course had to go get licensed by the state. Pennsylvania requires us to be licensed. Uh, it's like a hundred dollar fee. And of course you also have to remember, you got to put in like your sales tax. You got to get a sales tax number. You have to get your, if you're going to work on birds, you have to get your federal migration permit type of deal. And that goes through a whole nother thing from what your state is since that's federal. But that is what I had to do to open up in Pennsylvania. So yeah, like you're saying, if you're doing any kind of migratory birds, you need to get the what's it called the federal uh, migratory yeah. uh, license. And that's for anybody in any state. Yes. So even if your state doesn't require licensing, you have to get that one if you're handling any kind of migratory birds. Yep. So that's really important to know. Don't want to be caught without that. And then, so you said Pennsylvania, you need a license. So now... Heather, you work for a taxidermist, but you obviously are a taxidermist too, but you work for another company. So does each one of the employees at your studio have to be licensed individually? Uh, no, since we work underneath um, like a shop, his taxidermy license covers all of us. At least that's what all my research has ever shown. Since we're working under that business, that business's taxidermy license covers all of us. Okay, so that was something I was super curious about is when you said you needed to get a license, but that only applies to the business portion. So that's a good thing to keep in mind if you are looking into licensing. If you're not sure about something, you can always talk with like a game warden too. That's a good resource, just so you're not like breaking the law. As far as like licensing in states that I've personally lived in, you know, California is one of them. Didn't need a license to practice taxidermy. Oklahoma, where I'm at now, don't need a license to practice, practice taxidermy. And I actually did do a little bit of taxidermy in Idaho when I lived there after taxidermy school. So when I was up there, and I didn't hardly do any, but I still got my license, I think, because I was like, oh, I'm a taxidermist now. But um, I got my license, and it, that was $40, and it was through, like, fishing game. That was super simple. And it wasn't too expensive. Just examples oh, yeah. of where I've been. So I cannot believe that California does not require you to have a taxidermy license. Yeah, you would think that of all the states that California would, you know, be knocking on your door for your taxidermy license fee. But no, surprisingly, wow. there's not one. At least in all my research and then, you know, every other taxidermist that I've ever talked to no license is required. Like I've never heard anything about that, even from Fish and Game. Like, so yeah, you're good to go. If you want to do taxidermy in California, you just start up and wow. you run, you just run it like a regular business. But yeah, California has got weird laws regarding other weird facets of taxidermy. We'll talk about those later, but yeah, no license. Hmm. That's crazy. For example, if you're in Washington state, your taxidermy license is going to cost you 250 bucks. You said Pennsylvania's was 100, right? Yeah, yeah, we're 100 and people complain about that. So really next time, next time maybe move to Washington and then you won't complain about 100 bucks so much. Right? Um, for example, like I said Idaho is 40 bucks, Minnesota looks like 44 bucks. You know, it kind of varies in between those numbers and 
For example, Mississippi, if you're there, you can get your taxidermy license for a mere $12. That is, that is pretty nuts. Like, like, why even charge at that point? Like, what is that $12 going to do? <laughs> I would imagine that's just to keep you in a roster of some kind. Like, at that point, right? Just to have you on file. But yeah, it's generally around 50, 100, 150. You know, it's not terribly expensive, and that's usually annually. But, you know, that's... It's a, an expenditure that you need to consider if you're starting a taxidermy business. Yeah, yeah. Not everybody has like a lot of money to start out. So like, you know, a hundred bucks or 150 bucks might not seem like much once you're up and running. Sometimes just to get started, you're like, man, do I have an extra hundred bucks to put out on top of all this other stuff I'm doing? Right. Like that can be just an added expense that you don't expect. So just it's good to keep that in mind. Yeah. So licenses are one thing, but what about testing to make sure that somebody is even capable of doing taxidermy? Like, can you just go and get the license or do you need to do added steps in order to get that? Like, can anybody just purchase one? So like out of all of the 50 states, there are, are only two that require testing anymore. And it is like a huge debacle. So like in Pennsylvania, we used to have a test. Um, There was a hands-on part, which would be like setting a deer eye, for example. And then you had a written test for just, you know, typical taxidermy knowledge. And lastly, you had to bring five mounts to like be judged by somebody. You had to bring at least one mammal, one bird, one fish. And like the other ones could, from what people have told me, the other ones could kind of be mm, like whatever else you wanted to bring. That test helped regulate the taxidermy industry to make sure like no hacks went out there and just started ruining people's trophies. So, you know, not just everybody could become a taxidermist if they wanted to. Um, And that honestly was when our PA game commission was in charge of regulating the taxidermist and PA, which a little side story on that. I cannot mention names, anything like that, but we would have, from what I hear, a lot of nightmares and people were very, very happy when Pennsylvania got out from under the game commission um, and then like taxidermists and the game commission did not get along for a while. We had a taxidermist who I don't remember all the details about whatever happened with them in the game commission. If there was some sort of weird family issues, like maybe like a brother-in-law or something was part of the game commission and like, didn't like the taxidermy owner And the game commission could just like storm your doors anytime they wanted to, like full-blown like SWAT teams, search your freezers, search your records, kind of try to like find you doing something wrong so they could bust you. So this guy who had this business that the game commission literally showed up to his house in like almost the middle of the night, like I said, like full SWAT team, like busted in his house, tore apart his house, like wrote up all these things like... For instance, he wasn't allowed to have a wolf because wolves are extinct in Pennsylvania. But like he had all the stuff from where the wolf came from. Like it didn't come from Pennsylvania. It came from, I think it was like Canada or something. But they wanted to nail him for that. Like they'd write up all these makeup things. And he went to court and battled it out and ended up winning because he proved that all this stuff was just irrelevant and that's kind of when the game commission like split apart from Pennsylvania taxidermists. And that all ended like 2004, 2005. 
So now we are regulated by the USDA. Our state association actually has like a certified taxidermist program that focuses on kind of showcasing taxidermists who run good businesses and attend competitions and seminars to further their education. Because when we got out from under the game commission, one of the stipulations was that now our organization would kind of regulate what's going on, you know, try to make sure like almost kind of like run a test type of deal. So yeah, that was, oh, a whole, that, yeah. That's crazy. So I, you know, cause when people think of like laws and regulations, usually those don't get dropped. Usually, you know, when there's rules, there's just more rules on top of those. So for it to have a program that just ceased to exist and then obviously a new one popped up in its place there in Pennsylvania, that's kind of crazy and good for that guy for, I mean, sticking up for himself because you know, of course we weren't there. We don't know the full like scope of things. However, I do know that some laws and maybe this is just my personal opinion. Some taxidermy laws can be kind of, you know, not really that great in practice. Like maybe they're good ideas on paper, but you know, they're kind of senseless. They're not really good at actually practicing them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. So my opinion on doing like a test for, you know, to get licensed, which I think it's um, a good idea. However, I generally think the less regulation we have on this, it is also good. So like, it's just a very um, gray area, I guess, because there is so many people that maybe shouldn't be doing taxidermy and they're advertising to people that just don't know any better. So like you said, the USDA in Pennsylvania, they have taxidermists that they like recommend and they, you know, certify that are doing, you know, either good work or attending competitions and good standing, basically. So I think it is, uh, you know, where it shouldn't necessarily be like, you know, a test, I think. I think it's just important to keep a good reputation. But that's just my personal opinion, of course. You know, everything's kind of a gray area anymore. But while we're talking about licensing and tests and whatnot, there was another few instances of having to take an exam. Yes. Yes. So when you say, I kind of wanted to touch on that whole gray area thing really quick. Oh yeah. Go ahead. You saying about the, how do I word this? So our USDA regulates us, but the gray area is if you don't pay your hundred dollars to have your license, you just, you kind of, there's nobody out there regulating that. So there's nobody checking on it. And the only way that they end up checking on it is if somebody else like turns you in. Because of course your neighbor who's a taxidermist and they're paying $100 a year, they're not really happy that you're not paying $100 a year and you're doing taxidermy, but they have to. So like they might turn you in, USDA comes knocking at your door, gives you a call, hey, you gotta pay your $100. And then you're like, okay, here's $100. Like that's all that happens. So that kind of, you saying gray area kind of made me think of that, you know, that was a whole ordeal at, you know, taxidermists are mad at other taxidermists, taxidermists are mad. For example, in Pennsylvania, people that clean skulls, they do not need to have a taxidermy license unless they are mounting those skulls onto a plaque. Oh, no kidding. So you can actually clean the skull, but you don't need to, you know, have a license to do that. Yeah. Put on a plaque. Yeah. Because I guess you're like, you're not considered a taxidermist unless you're mounting it on something like that's the way it's written in the law. 
So that was a whole whole debacle too. But um, kind of back back to the testing. Uh, even though they seem to be like a thing of the past, and I had mentioned there are two states that still require testing. It is an oral test, which is like bringing a mount to be judged, and there's a written test. Those are Maine and Maryland are the last two. So like the written test includes questions about tanning and preserving hides and also like how to wrap bird bodies. I had talked to a friend of mine in Maryland and he said when he took it back in 2018, it seemed to be like a really outdated test. Like they made one test back in the 80s and like never felt the need to update it to like the modern things that we're doing now. Oh, and we both know that taxidermy has came a long way in just those 40 years. So I feel like that might need a little update if they're going to continue that. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And then um, when I talked to the president of the Maine Association, uh, he was kind of telling me what their test is like. So they would do, again, a written test where it'd be like, you know, what color eyes does like a wood duck have? But... What was interesting was they had to provide, like, you would think you could provide a bird, a deer, a small mammal, but this one, you had to provide, like, everything. You had to bring a bird, a fish, a small mammal, a uh, a reptile, a skull, like, if you were going to do skull cleaning, like, There were a whole bunch of them. If any of you listening know what the other ones were, like, please feel free to comment and let us know. But it was pretty in depth. Like I was, it was surprising. And so that's in Maine, you said, right? Yeah, that's the Maine one. Yeah, I'd be curious to like, see that test and see what they're actually asking and stuff. Because that's, you know, maybe some of that information might be a little bit subjective. And so if it's super specific, I don't know, maybe... Maybe that could get you in a bind. But then also, yeah. all that stuff's probably good to know anyway. Yeah, it would be great to like get a copy of that test and post it. So like, keep an eye out. Maybe I'll figure out a way to get Yeah, that. let's make a note of that. <laughs> yeah. How crazy. Definitely, it's important to stay up to date. You know, and like we're saying, get your taxidermy license if you have to per your state. But I also want to add on one quick thing about that too, is that most states have a taxidermy association and you can become a member and you can become a member of different states taxidermy associations too you don't have to stick to your own yeah but then also be just being a member of your state's association that's something that you can advertise to customers and it's something that you can actually take pride in because a lot of states have certain bylaws that a taxidermist has to abide by and you have to be in good standing and so it just you know that's kind of just an extra bonus thing that you can do to give yourself a little more like rapport, I guess. I agree. That was a good, that was a good point. I know I, I'm a hardcore, definitely join your state association person. Just because I know how much it's helped me. I wouldn't be where I'm at if I hadn't. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I think we're both really big proponents on that, on competitions and conventions and in the whole world of that, joining your association. We're going to make that our motto, join your state's association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a good thing. I mean, the people you meet. So once you get all the learning and legal stuff done, it's time to start stocking up on what tools you need to start your business or just start doing taxidermy in general. Because we all know tools of the trade, that's your most important thing. For example, when I went to taxidermy school, they gave us a whole list of things that we needed to get. And I was like, dang, this is a lot of things. And I don't think I can afford them right away. So the advice I was given was, well, just buy what you need as you go along. And 
that's great advice, but also that's kind of tough too, because you need so many things sometimes to even just put one mount together. I definitely have tools that I consider like my MVP tools, stuff like I have certain like, uh, you know, literal sculpting tools that I use all the time or like the things that I use on every single mount. Um, For example, if like you're doing game heads, any kind of, uh, you know, deer mounts, you need a mounting stand. I don't know how you could mount something without one. You'd have to get pretty creative. So I think that's a really important tool, stuff like that. Yeah, those are all very, very valid. I know I have things like you need salt. You know, if you're going to be tanning stuff, like you got to get the right kind of salt that you're going to use. You need a sturdy table because I've had, you know, trying to skin stuff on a not so sturdy table and it's a nightmare. Scalpels and handles and a hot glue gun, (laughs) things like that are definitely things that you kind of... Yeah, little things. Yes, yeah. Um, I know I made a list. You made a really great list, and we had kind of talked about combining these lists in a way. Um, You have a great list that kind of tells people where they can find the stuff that uh, that you named. And I also made a list of things that are like things that you need, things that you want, and things that like you would love to have. So... I tried to break it down that that way, if you were on a budget, you know, you kind of know what you have to have and you can make do with that until you maybe have the money to buy some of the nicer things. I think that list that you made is really important, especially for like beginners. Cause like you're saying you have like, these are the tools, like the, you know, bare necessity type tools. And then the, you know, more luxury items that you're talking about are probably things that a person has when they're, you know, maybe years into it, or maybe I don't even have all the tools on that list. So I need to see this list here. We'll post this yeah, on like yeah. Facebook and all that. And, and we'll try to share it here on our video too. Yeah. Um, but for I do sure. have it for sure, for sure on taxidermy Q&A, the, the group on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. I know a couple of things that I have on my love, like my wish list, are things like a fleshing wheel. You know, you can get by without one if you're just sending your stuff out to the tannery. But like to have one's really nice. And um, like the high powered like pet dryers or like a cattle blower, those are fantastic. But I remember the days of drying them with a hair dryer and it takes forever. That's funny that you mentioned those two things because those are like on my wish list. And that's exactly what I've thought of <laughs> yeah. when you said like the luxury list. Because flushing wheel, yep. I think, you know, that's something I don't personally have and I don't necessarily need it. But if you're doing any kind of tanning yourself, like anything larger than like a bobcat, I think that's really important to have. Yes. But you can get by with other things. And then the other one you said, the pet blower, that one I don't have. And I just probably need to buy one, but I don't necessarily need it that often. But those are super handy to have too. So yeah, (laughs) that that checks out with exactly what I was thinking on luxury items. Another item I was thinking of in like you know, when you're just starting out in taxidermy and something that's super important is freezer space. Um, maybe it's an underrated item because it's not really an item, but I think it's so important that you utilize a freezer in some way. Like you can use your house freezer, but if you have something large, it might not fit. You know, maybe getting a chest freezer is something that, you know, if, depending on what a person needs, but that's something you need to have if you're doing any kind of taxidermy is, um, in my opinion, is freezer space. Yes, I agree. I mean, I... I know I have luxury now working where I work. Uh, I never would have thought I'd ever 
have the luxury of a walk-in freezer. That's like full blown. Yeah, you guys have love wish the big walk-in. <laughs> yes, like I, you know, when I ran my own business, I had two chest freezers and uh, like one refrigerator freezer, like a normal household one. And oh my gosh, the days of having to dig to the very bottom to get a cape out. And then you got to figure out how to stack all the stuff back in on top that it fits. Like I dreaded searching in the freezer. I absolutely dreaded it. And now we can just walk right in and uh, maybe I'll share that clip with you guys too. That nice freezer. It is one of, even though I did not build it, it is one of my pride and joys because <laughs> it's so nice. Yeah, that looks like, I mean, that's top oh. tier luxury for a taxidermist. I can't think of much more than having a walk-in freezer. Because like what you're saying about how you used to have the two chest freezers searching for stuff, that's my life right now is I'm running three chest freezers and my, you know, just my house freezer, which I do store stuff and I try not to. Yeah. But, you know, when things get full, you do what you got to do. And it's not too bad, but it's freezer space is so important. And, mm. you know, like you have a big studio. You guys need a walk in, that's for sure. Yeah, I don't know. We'd have a lot of chest freezers if we didn't. <laughs> but, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> a, an interesting little thing you saying about using your house freezer and you try not to. I just got to tell you guys this quick story of using your house freezer for taxidermy things. Let's hear so, it. I had um, acquired a squirrel monkey and it's not skinned yet. So it's not very big, you know, and it's all kind of wrapped up. And the one day my husband was here at the house and I was working and he thought, you know what, I should do something nice and cook her dinner. And he thought that we had some sausage in the freezer. So he gets in there and he's looking around and he pulls this thing out and he's like, that's some weird looking sausage. It was my squirrel monkey. <laughs> and thankfully he figured out what it was and he stuck it back in the freezer. Like he didn't thaw it out so and then try to unwrap was, it. And... No. Yeah. Yeah. My squirrel monkey was almost dinner. <laughs> Oh man, yes. Uh, yeah, you, you need to label those bags. No, squirrel monkey. Yeah, I guess. Right so. on the bag. But no, I, I definitely get in the habit sometimes of just putting stuff in the freezers. That's another just good tip, I guess, in general. A good segue into that one is to, uh, you know, keep things labeled and stay organized, yes, especially, yes. Um, you know, legal stuff. Important to keep things all labeled. And. You know, if you got deer you're bringing in, keep the antlers labeled and all that. But not to take away from your monkey story, but... Oh, no, no. <laughs> <that's>, uh, <laughs> oh, man. Labeling stuff is very important. But, <laughs> that's uh, hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he's like, well, I thought that looked like some weird sausage. Well, it's because it was a monkey, so... <laughs> Did you ever mount that thing? Uh, Just not side yet, note. Not yet. I have tried, like, working on ideas for that one. So we'll see. I'm kind of somewhat dreading it. So is it still in your house freezer it's, it's still in the yeah, it's still in the freezer yeah <laughs> uh, it is still that'll there. be a cool one but yeah I mean it is one of those things that uh you know there are so many um interesting things when we start talking about how to get into taxidermy it's a lot of depth and we hope that our episode here at least gave some people some insight on what the best paths are gonna be for them because of course everybody doesn't have the same time and budget and uh, space, you know, your working space, you can do everything from working out of a bedroom of your house to, you know, starting in a full-blown garage or something. So I'm really hoping that some of our info we shared today helps some people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably the hardest part about taxidermy is just getting into it and beginning and you know, learning taxidermy, basically. So whether you go to a school, you find a mentor, 
maybe you're just DIY in it for now, we definitely recommend going to your conventions, being a member of your state's association. That's a huge thing. Networking. There's all kinds of different ways to get into taxidermy and it really depends on like what your goals are. But yeah, I hope this helped. I hope we, you know, give you guys some resources to kind of think about like what works best for you and hopefully something in here kind of resonates with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's all we can hope for. And, and, you know, the information that we're going to be putting out on Facebook and Instagram um, and also kind of linking with this YouTube video should really help some people figure out where to start. But the hardest part is you actually have to start. So many people can talk about, Oh, I want to do taxidermy and I want to get into taxidermy, but you're never going to get into it unless you just do it. Yeah, no kidding. Like you said, I mean, talking about doing taxidermy, I know I, before I really got started, I always was really, you know, talking about it a lot, not necessarily doing it as much as I, you know, want it to be. So like you're saying, it's important. Just got to do it. Get that thing out of the freezer yep. and thaw it out. Start skinning yep, it. Exactly. It's, you know, talk is easy, but work is not. <laughs> Right. So yeah, it's, it's hard, man. Um, just real quick. I mean, I want to just emphasize too, like just how difficult taxidermy can actually be. Taxidermy can kind of get like this idea about it, that it's simple and that, you know, anyone can do it, which anyone can. However, I think it's a lot more complicated than people realize. And then once you start taxidermy, you realize how complicated it is and how many different skill sets you need and how much information, how many different tools you need to do it successfully. It just, it's a big industry too. And you know, there's a lot to it. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, learning it, it does help to be artistic. If you don't have an artistic bone in your body, Mm, good point, you're probably going to struggle because you need to kind of be able to look at something and replicate it. And having an artistic eye really helps you with that. But I mean, I know people that are not artistic and they run a just fine taxidermy business because to be honest, sometimes an artistic brain is not the best brain to have at least from my point of view, I'm always thinking about something, but uh, I'm also also not thinking about what I probably should be thinking about. That's a really good point you bring up. And I'm glad you mentioned it because I hadn't thought about that as we were talking about this is that being artistic definitely can help in taxidermy, reading reference, just looking at something and, you know, seeing if it looks right, basically. You know, I like I consider myself pretty artistic. Like I was always into like, you know, painting, drawing, whatever. And I think that definitely helped translate into taxidermy because it truly is an art. I think that's another underrated aspect of taxidermy is that people don't realize like how much of an art it is. But then like you're saying too, sometimes an art-minded brain isn't always the best for like, you know, I guess in my experience, getting stuff done sometimes. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. I can kind of um, maybe overthink things and maybe work too hard on something or not enough on others. And yeah, But of course, in my experience, it helps to be artistic. So that's yeah, my personal perspective. Yep, I agree. Well, I think we covered a lot of information in this episode and we're going to post all this stuff like on our social and all that little guides that we've talked about, like the tools and the schools, all that. We want to share as much information as possible. We also want to thank you for listening to our new podcast, Wildverse. We're excited to share this journey with you. And if you would like to stay up to date on new episode releases, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Wildverse, to see when new episodes come out. You can also show us some love by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And we hope you have an amazing week. And hey, 
don't forget to tip your taxidermist. <laughs> yes.